dismissed. And uh, she was wandering through the desert with uh, her son, and she got to a moment of desperation. And God uh, ended up showing her a fountain where she could get water. I mean, she had already put uh, Ishmael over there behind a tree. He can die. She didn't want to hear his cries. And God intervened and produced a fountain for her. You think about Israel as they were wandering through the desert. They were also in need of water. And God supplied that water for them. And then in John, uh, uh, Jesus is there in Jerusalem. And he says that he, he's living water. Uh, it's, a, it's a neat theme that's going on there with water and that God supplies that. We're in Matthew chapter 19, verse uh, 27 through 30. That's only four verses, so we should be able to get out of here very, rather early, right? I mean, four verses, this would be uh, rather quickly we'll get through this. And um, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Matthew 19... 27 through verse 30. The word of the Lord said, Then Peter said to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or farms, for my name's sake, will receive many times as much, and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Let's pray. Father, I pray now that your spirit would work in our minds. Father, we're looking for something that only your spirit can do. There's no amount of logic. There's no amount of rhetoric. There's no persuasiveness that can change us to be more like Christ and less like ourselves, except through your spirit and through your word. And I pray that we will meditate on your word, that we will see what is revealed here and apply it appropriately to our lives, not just today, but throughout this week and the rest of our lives. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> so um, a, a while back, and I'm talking more than 20 years ago, there used to be kind of a, a, a theme, uh, something that was done a lot, and that was preaching on future events, the future events that you see in, in the Bible. Uh, that's the area of eschatology, the, the study of future events. And there was a lot of preachers that would study on these things, and they would present um, all these future things that were happening. And a lot of focus got put on the book of Revelation and also on the book of Daniel and some of Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah. And a lot of emphasis got put on what was about to be happening as things developed. And, and of course, uh, there was a lot of things developing, and people tried to trace all the different things and say that, yes, they could see things unraveling before them, and and pretty soon Christ was going to establish the kingdom. But uh, about 20 years ago, uh, people started saying, you know, that, that's really great, all this stuff that's going to be happening in the future, that's fantastic, all this stuff, but I'm dealing with this really bad marriage right now, and, and I need to know how to get through this week. Um, how do I get through this week with this marriage? 
Other people will say, I, I've got these kids, and, and you just don't understand these kids. They're terrible kids. I need, I need three steps to make these terrible kids wonderful kids. I, I need three steps for that. Or I've got this terrible boss, uh, horrible boss, I mean, just terrible boss, and I, I need to know how to win him over and uh, climb the corporate ladder. I need sermons that are going to help me now. I don't really care about what's going to happen in the future. And, and so uh, there was a shift that, that preachers started doing. They started um, telling the, the congregations what they needed now, you know, uh, three steps for a healthy marriage, two steps to have the greatest kids, how to enjoy the best life right now. You know, what, what can you do? And, and people loved it. They, they, they were fascinated by it. But something that uh, Jesus brings out, and, and really the Bible brings out, is that the knowing of future events should influence how we live right now. Because what happens in the future depends on what we're doing right now. It, it, they're not isolated, like, <laughs> I live right now, and then the future is going to come. And whatever happens then is, is what happens then, but the two are distinct. No, the Bible presents that how we're living now impacts, influences how we will live, where we will live, what we'll be doing, uh, whether it'll be eternity with the Father or eternity in punishment. Now, as we look at this, we've seen that Jesus is on the road to the cross. He is going with the expectation to, to die for our sins. He's going to be the, the perfect lamb that will be sacrificed uh, in our place. Uh, does he deserve it? No. But he's going to go and he's doing this because of God's love for us. And, and we see that on one side he is on his way there, but the disciples are kind of bickering and, and complaining and talking about how they might be the greatest in the kingdom. How, how can they be uh, number one, in the, well, not number one, because that's where God is and Christ and the Holy Spirit, but how can they be number four in the kingdom? And, and Jesus has, on the way to the cross, he's teaching them things that is just leaving them really shocked. Uh, children are introduced into the kingdom, but then you have these very religious people, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and you've got this rich young ruler who, who um, has this morality. I mean, he's just impressive, his, his resume. Uh, from childhood, he's been obeying the law perfectly. Uh, and Jesus kind of just dismisses them. And the disciples are so shocked. I mean, they, they don't, you can't even say anything before Jesus has to just, he can tell the, the expression. He goes into this whole thing about uh, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, and et cetera, et cetera. And then they ask him, well, if, if this is how it is, you know, who, who can get into heaven? How can there be salvation? And Jesus says, well, it's impossible, humanly speaking. There's not a way in the world that you can save yourself. There's not enough kindness. There's not enough good works that you can do. There's nothing that you can do on your own to somehow reach into heaven. That you can't. Your sin separates you from God. And, and as much as you try, and as much as you try to, to reach up there, the gulf is too big. There's nothing you can do. This is where we find ourselves, and the first point is, what is Peter going to get? What is Peter going to get? That's, that's the question that we see in verse 27. Uh, Peter says to him, to Jesus, behold, which is a, is a very unique word. It kind of has this idea of, look here. Okay, so Jesus, Peter's getting, I guess, kind of uh, 
kind of brave in how he's addressing Jesus. Behold, look here. We have left everything and followed you. And that idea of followed has this uh, kind of a continuous aspect. So it's not that we were following you in the past, but he's saying like right now we're following you, even on the way to Jerusalem. We have been following you. We are following you. And he says, uh, what then will, uh, will there be for us? That, there's the question. What, what are we going to get out of this? Somehow you introduce children into the kingdom. Somehow you dismiss the, the rich person, the Pharisees, the religious people. So where do we stand? That, that's what he wants to know. Where do we stand? Now, it's kind of interesting because if we start to analyze a little bit what's going on with, with Peter, like if we go to Matthew chapter 8, verse 14, in Matthew chapter 8, 14, we see the situation where his mother-in-law is, is sick, and it says in verse 14, when Jesus came into Peter's home, oh, what do you mean, his home? I thought he just said he, he got rid of everything. I, I thought he just said there in the verse, we, we've, we've left everything. But he's got a home. Not only does he have a home, but he seems to have a bed for his mother-in-law. So his, his everything doesn't seem to be everything, everything. He seems to quantify everything a little bit different. Now, when we look at this, I, I think it's very interesting to know uh, two aspects here. The first aspect is that uh, we usually tend to exaggerate our sacrifice. He's exaggerating a little bit his sacrifice. We, we tend to exaggerate a little bit our sacrifice. That, that's something that he's doing here. I get rid of everything for you, but he's got a whole house and he's got a bed. and So he's exaggerating a little bit. When we look at sacrificing everything, we see really the example is Jesus on the cross dying for his enemies. And I'm not sure Peter's there yet. In fact, I'm not sure that, that we're there yet, right? I mean, we might think, well, I've done this, I've done that. But are we sacrificing ourselves to the point of dying for our enemies? We say, no. But unfortunately, we tend to sometimes exaggerate our sacrifice. And not only exaggerate our sacrifice, but uh, he's not considering the fact that he doesn't know the end of the story. He's not considering that uh, we don't know the end of the story. Here he is, and he's asking what he's going to receive, right? He wants to know what is he going to get. And he's assuming that he's been faithful enough and that he will continue to be faithful enough that he should receive some type of gift, some type of reward from God. But we know how the story develops, don't we? You remember that night before the crucifixion? Uh, he's talking about there's going to be someone who's going to betray him, and Peter's like, I would never betray you. Jesus is like, dude, before the crow sings, three times you're going to deny me. Like, never. I'll die before I... And sure enough, before the crow sings, he's denied him. Uh, can you imagine? Here he is asking for what he's going to inherit, but he doesn't know how the story is going to end. He assumes a certain pride. He assumes a certain arrogance that he should receive something without really understanding, maybe, what's going to happen in his life. Now, if Peter falters, 
what hope is there for us? I mean, really, I mean, Peter, he's there with Jesus. He's one of the three. And the thing is, is that we really uh, should have a humility about wondering what we should receive as a recompense, uh, as a reward. Now, not only does he, uh, we see these two aspects about his request, uh, but we see that Jesus is going to give them an answer. Jesus will give them thrones. That's what we're going to see. He's going to promise them thrones. Verse 28 says, And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, that you who have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now, there is a, a lot of uh, confusion with this. Like, how do we understand this, really? What, what's going on in this passage? Well, when we look at this, Jesus is responding to them, and he says, truly. And it takes quite the act of humility, because <laughs> if I was Jesus, I'd be like, dude, don't be asking about reward. You're going to betray me, you know? I mean, just a little bit, you're going to betray me. So don't be asking about, but Jesus doesn't do that. He, he tells them, look, you're going to get something. So, uh, and he says, for you that are uh, that follow me. Now, when is there going to get this thing? Well, something that's going to be future, and there's two temporal markers that point to this is going to be futuristic. In the Bible, we see things that are future, and it's future from the point of the writer, and then there is stuff that is future also from the point of the reader. And I can give examples of this, for example, uh, there is um, the prophecies of Isaiah of Christ coming and being born. Uh, those are future for Isaiah when he's writing them, but we read them as something that's happened in the past. This is something that is future for Matthew, for Peter, but it's also future for us. And the two temporal markers, the first one is, it says there in the regeneration, verse 28, in the regeneration, which is this word for renewal or rebirth. It's only used one other time in the New Testament, and it's found in Titus chapter 3, verse 5. And, and in that context, this regeneration that happens, this rebirth that happens, is done through the Holy Spirit. When he comes and he gives life to someone who is dead, dead in their trespasses of sin, dead, away, separated from God. At that moment of salvation, the Holy Spirit gives life. There's this rebirth. But this the other temporal marker is this aspect of uh, the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne. That is a reference back to Daniel chapter 7, 9 through 14. In Daniel chapter 7, we know that this is the vision that, that Daniel sees of kingdoms that will come. Uh, the kingdom of Persia, of Greece, of Rome. And then there will be this one ancient of days that appears. He's seeing this in a vision. The ancient of the day will appear, and then one as the Son of Man will come, and he will be given dominion and power and rule over all the nations. Now, is that happening right now? Well, no. Uh, we don't have a theocratic system right now. God isn't ruling over in the sense of a political uh, aspect right now. We know that there's the God of this world, which is Satan, which is against Christ, that is roaming around to, to devour people like a roaring lion. Uh, so we know that this is still something futures. This is something that's going to happen. And it's really something that's going to happen during the millennial reign. That's a thousand year reign that Christ will establish at his second coming. When Christ returns, he will establish a reign for a thousand years. Uh, now in this, 
that he's going to establish this kingdom for a thousand years, he says that they're going to get something. He says, you will sit upon 12 thrones. Uh, and it says that they're going to be judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, what does that mean? How are we supposed to understand this aspect that they're going to be judging? Well, uh, what complicates this is that everyone who goes into the millennium, into the thousand-year reign, will be uh, saved. How do I know that? I don't have the scripture verse on there, but we'll have to go to uh, Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter 31. And uh, you'll see in verse 31... Chapter 31, verse 31 through 34, uh, it says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. So he says he's going to establish a new covenant, this covenant is not going to be like the covenant when he took Israel out of, out of Egypt. We know that at Mount Sinai, he establishes the Mosaic covenant. He gives them their law. What does he say? He says, uh, these are the, the commandments that I give you. Do you. Are you going to obey them? And they say, oh, yes, we'll obey them. And did they obey them? Well, of course not. They, they failed to obey them. Now, he says, uh, continues in um, verse, I missed my place. Verse 33, but this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor or each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Uh, has that happened? Well, of course not. Jesus declared when he gave the Great Commission to go out and teach, right? To go disciple. Uh, here, you're not going to need to disciple. So this can't be right now we're living in this new covenant when he's going to establish this because we still have to uh, teach people. So everyone going into this millennial reign, this thousand-year reign, they're going to be saved. Now, so how do we understand this? We can understand judging, because if, if we see everyone there as judging, as, uh, as saved, how is this judging going to happen? Uh, we can understand judging, like, for example, in Judges, where it's not really being in a court of law, but it's rather this aspect of ruling, of having authority, of having, like, government authority over. And, and this seems kind of logical, but what makes this a little bit complicated is that the Greek usage here, which this was written in Greek, uh, the Greek usage of judging has this idea of like judging for something done bad, something done evil, uh, to how a, a judge in a court judges. You guys are all following me? We're, we're good? All right. So there's two uses. One could be in the Hebrew sense, where they have authority, uh, that they're governors. The other sense is that they are ruling, uh, they're judging as in a court of law. How, which use is it saying here? What, what is Jesus saying that they're going to be doing? 
I believe that what Jesus is talking about is that both aspects are included here. And the reason why is because in Revelation chapter 20, I didn't include this verse, but we can turn there real quickly. Revelation chapter 20, we see uh, in verse 7, says, um, When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for war. And the number of them is like the sand of the seashores. How in the world is Satan going to deceive people? Everyone's going in is saved. Oh, somewhere along the line, the parents don't teach the children. Somewhere along the line, the children decide to rebel against what they're being taught. And somewhere along the line, when Satan finally comes and deceives them, they're eager to follow after them. So in this sense, it's possible for this judging to have both aspects. They're going to be ruling, but also going to be judging, because we know at the end of the millennium, at the end of the thousand-year reign, that there's going to be this aspect where there's going to be some who are going to be going away from God. Now, he says that this isn't just for them. This isn't just for Israel, but it says, verse 29, and for everyone who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms, for my name's sake will receive many times as much. So now he opens it up. This isn't a blessing of reward just for the 12 that are following him, but there's a blessing and a reward for anyone who's deciding to make Christ more precious than anything else in their life. Now, when we look at this, many of us probably could say, oh yeah, I've, I've left my parents. I mean, they were really bothersome. I mean, they were so annoying. I left them. Or someone might say, yeah, I... Uh, I, I left my, uh, my kids. I mean, they, they were just holding me back, and I had a better career ahead of me, so I just gave them over to my parents, and I took off with my career. This isn't just an abandoning for abandoning's sake. This isn't for personal gain, but rather this is an abandonment for my name's sake. That's for Christ. And what Jesus is saying here is that you find Christ more precious than any other relationship that, that's around. You find him more valuable than parents and than children or brothers and sisters. Now this is sometimes very hard because many of us maybe have spent years praying for the kids that we have. We've prayed and prayed and prayed and, and uh, God gave us these kids and, and it's a blessing of the Lord. But there's the, there's the trick. There, there's the thing is that sometimes we will start to worship the blessing that God gave us more than God himself. We'll put more attention on what he has given us rather than worshiping God. And here Jesus is saying, uh-uh, you're going to follow me. I have to be more precious than anything else in your life. And that's where it becomes very complicated for us. Where we say, well... I really like God's blessing more than I like God. I really like what he has given me. The, the possessions that I have, the houses, the, the farms, as it said, the lands. I, I enjoy that more than I enjoy God. And that's, that's the trick that Jesus is exposing to them. Now, as we look at this, we see that uh, God has to be more precious. 
And we see this reward that he gives. The reward will be, uh, will receive many times as much uh, and will inherit eternal life. So there's two aspects that they're going to be receiving. One thing is that as you give this stuff up, you'll receive many times as much. Now, what does that mean? I mean, having two parents was hard. Why would I want many more parents, right? Um, with my budget, I can barely afford the kids that I have. Why do I want a bunch of other kids, right? How do we understand this, that it says uh, you're going to receive many times as much? And I believe this is a promise that has both an immediate uh, reward and also a future reward. The immediate reward is as you make Christ most precious, you'll also get involved in what Christ is involved with, and that's the church. And in the church, you'll find older individuals, you'll find younger individuals, you'll find individuals your own age. And through following Christ, you'll have something closer than a family. Uh, you'll have brothers and sisters in Christ, and that's a blessing now. But also in heaven, you'll have family there as well. And then not only that, but eternal life. This is something as following Christ, you'll have eternal life. Uh, and then he says, verse 30, But as many who are first will be last, and the last shall be first. Now this is a paradoxical statement. How in the world is this going to make sense? It doesn't make sense that if I say, um, you go ahead of me, lo and behold, ha, 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 it was a trick, now I'm ahead of you, you know. How does this work? Because it's saying the ones who are first will be last, but then those who are last are actually first. This aspect of being last implies weakness. It implies weakness. It implies that you weren't able to get first. I was uh, homeschooled when I was uh, in Venezuela. My parents were missionaries, and I was being homeschooled. And one thing that I never had was uh, PE. I had math tutors, I had English tutors, I had all the other tutors, but never had PE. And so I came to the States for my senior year of high school, and I was lacking PE, and the only spot that I had that I could do PE was with 7th graders. I was going to do PE with 7th graders. So I, here I was a 12th grader doing PE with 7th graders. And uh, they, they had us running around the field for, for a mile. Well, all those 7th graders finished the mile way before I did. <laughs> I mean, way ahead of me, right? In fact, they blew the whistle to go back in and change, and I was still like maybe half a mile, you know, Ugh, you know, going. In that lastness, there was a weakness that the seventh graders did not have. Now, how does this apply to, to God? There's no strong people that come to God, and God doesn't use strong people. There's only weak people. Very, very weak people. And the moment you say, well, look at, my, look at my resume. Look what I have to offer. That's when God starts to apply the pressure and starts to show you the weakness that you have in your life. There's no, there's no strong people. You, you remember that young boy, David? He, he couldn't even fit into Saul's armor. But God used him to kill Goliath. You remember Gideon? He was threshing wheat, hidden. And that's who God used to free Israel. Or how about Rahab, the prostitute? 
No parent looks at all the career paths and say, daughter, th this is what I want you to be, right? No one does that. There's weakness in this, and yet God uses her to save her family and to teach us about faith. Well, how about Ruth? She's an immigrant. She's a foreigner. One of those people from over there, not from over here. Yet God uses her to show his grace and his love. And through her comes Jesus Christ. God uses weak people. And this aspect of being last has this idea of being weak. Many have tried to deal with different addictions, and they tried to think, well, maybe I can outsmart this, this addiction. So we start reading books, maybe start doing Bible studies, and we start doing all these things thinking that maybe we can outsmart our addiction. But it's through weakness that we get over addiction. Oh, they're saying, well, I'm going to willpower my way through this. I'm just going to say, no, I'm, I'm not going to drink this. I'm not going to look at that. I'm not going to gossip about this. I, I'm just going to determine that I'm not going to do this anymore. And again and again you fail. Why? Because it's not until you realize that you can't. And you get to that utter desperation, I can't. And I need God to work through me that you can get over an addiction. It's not to the point that you realize that there's nothing inside of you that can willpower your way through it. There's no classes that you can learn that you can push through it. It's only through a great and powerful God. We see here that being last implies a weakness. Now, we have to ask ourselves the question, what are we going to get? What are we going to get? And I want to be very clear at this point because Matthew's focus is on being a disciple. It, uh, it already assumes the person has taken a step of faith. And as it assumes that a person has taken a step of faith, it's saying, this is what a disciple does. So he's not going like John and saying, how do you become saved? He's assuming the person is already saved and what they're supposed to be doing. So and I think this is very, very clear because sometimes we might think that uh, to know if we're saved or not, we're supposed to look at maybe our fruit, maybe the things that we're doing. Maybe there's evidences of things that we're doing that we can somehow look to see if we're saved or not. Or, or maybe we look back to a prayer that we made, or maybe we got baptized and, and we look back to those things and we say, I'm saved. And let me be very, very clear that salvation does not come through any of those things. It only comes through Jesus Christ and putting your faith in Jesus Christ. Um, <laughs> they asked my good friend John Calvin, how do you know if you're saved? How do you have assurance of salvation? He said, don't, don't look at your works. Uh, don't look of anything that you've done. Look to Jesus Christ. Look to Him. If you're doubting salvation, look to Him. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. Well, I did a prayer line. Don't, don't look at the prayer. Look to Jesus. Put your faith in Jesus. That's what saves. Now, when I say this idea of believing in Jesus, if, uh, please understand that it involves three aspects. When I say believing in Jesus, don't, don't just think I'm saying you have to have a mental assent of something, but rather in believing in Jesus, it's one, the first thing is recognizing that your sins separate you from God. That's the first point. 
believing in Jesus is to recognize that your sins separate from you, from, uh, separate you from God. There's nothing you can do within yourself. You are separate. You have God's wrath upon you. And there's no type of good works and no type of good things that you can do to somehow bridge that gap. Not only does your sin separate you, but um, you have to repent of your sins. So maybe you thought, well, I'll try to do good works. I'll try to do the things. That needs to be abandoned altogether. And say, no, I'm not going to put my faith in that. It's repenting of your sins and believing that Jesus' death is the only thing that can save you. When I say believing, it involves several things. Recognizing that you're a sinner, repenting of the sins that you have, and believing Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. Now, what rewards are there for those who believe in Christ? Uh, Believing in Christ, it brings rewards. Uh, We know from John 3, 16 and 17, it says, uh, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to judge the world, but that through the world He might be saved through Him. How are they saved through Him? By believing in Jesus Christ. Now, not only do we have this eternal life as a reward, but we also have other rewards. For example, Revelation chapter 2, verse 10, uh, it says, Do not fear uh, what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison, so that you will be tested, and you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you a crown of life. There are so many people who are faithful up until the point of retirement, and then they just disappear. Where do they go? I don't know. I guess to Florida or something. And are they in church faithfully serving? No, they're not in church faithfully. Are they faithfully serving God in some capacity? No. There's a crown for those who faithfully serve until the end. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4. This is a crown given to those who are shepherding, who are pastors. It says, and when the chief shepherd appears you will receive an unfading crown of glory. Uh, We also see those who persevere under trial, James 1.12. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life. Uh, 2 Timothy 4.8, we see those who uh, love Christ appearing. It says in verse 8, In the future there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all those who have loved his appearing. Do you love, do you anticipate Christ's appearing? Like, no, I've got a whole bucket list of things I want to do. Could you you not come back yet? I've got things I want to do. I want to get married. I want to have these experiences. I want to go traveling. And and really, if you came right now, it would just be a bummer. Do you love his appearing? There's a crown for that. There's a reward for that. We know from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12 through 15, we read this morning through uh, 10 through 15, but there's this aspect of any man who's building, and this idea of building, he's using a metaphor of, of, of building works that you're doing. Some works will be gold, silver, and precious stones, and others will be wood, hay, and stubble. How will it be revealed? How will one work be gold, silver, and precious stones? How will the other one be revealed? He says it's through fire. We know through um, 
Romans chapter 14, verse 10, that there will be a Bema seat. There will be a time of the Christian, his works will be judged. And uh, they'll be judged and to see. Uh, here is a person that maybe does a bunch of good works, but they do it only so that people can see them. How sad. And it says that as it goes, those works will go through fire. They'll just burn up. You'll have a nice pile of ashes to give to the Lord. Look, here you go. Isn't this nice? What he needs, right? He needs a bunch of ashes. Now, uh, we look at this, and we end up with this idea that you have to abandon your life to follow Jesus by surrendering all things dear in your life. I wonder how many of us are holding on to things that are dear. For some, it might be autonomy. I'm going to do what I want to do. Maybe when I get old, I'll do the silly stuff, but right now, I, I want to live my life. For some, you have held on to the blessings of God rather than to God. You prayed and prayed and prayed for something, and God gave it to you, and now you hold that to be so dear to your heart that God is so small in comparison to His blessing. And to really follow Jesus, it involves putting those things aside and looking to Him and Him being more precious than anything in your life. It's a, it's a matter of surrendering what you have to Him. And the question is, have you ever done that? Maybe you've never done that because you've never trusted Christ as your Savior. You maybe have some stories about Jesus, maybe you have some information about Jesus, but there's never been a time when you realize that your sin has separates you from God and you have God's wrath upon you and that there's nothing you can do and that you've had to believe that Jesus Christ, he died in your place to save you. Many of us, maybe we have been saved, but little by little, God's blessings have taken a priority in our lives. That house that he gave us, the cars, the et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, they have become more precious to us than God himself. And we should repent of that. Let's have a word of prayer. Father.